Okay, we're on. Sarge said he didn't get a chance to do a sound test, so I didn't want to shout good morning and blow your eardrums. But good morning. morning. Now I can. Um, Great to be here as always. It's wonderful to be able to worship God freely. And I always appreciate the honesty that comes out at our church. I've been in lots of different um, uh, worship services in lots of different denominations, um, mostly because of my job. I get to go hang out with lots of different Christians in lots of different places, and that's pretty cool. But I've always been encouraged by the level of honesty in our church. And so thanks for that. I know it's not always easy, but it is good and it is encouraging. Okay, so this morning we are continuing with our mega series, Meet God Almighty. We're up to number 11. Oh, I need to turn on my remote thingy because I do have a couple of slides this morning. Um, if you want to follow along, we'll be flicking around Genesis a bit, but we'll be starting out in chapter 11. So if you want to head there in whatever you're using for your device um, or your uh, paper booklet or anything, uh, whatever you're using to read the scriptures. Um, so start at Genesis chapter 11. And as you all know, I like questions and I like to start off my messages with a question. So this one is a little bit difficult to apply because it doesn't always happen to all of us. But anyway, the first question is, if God ordered you to pack up everything and leave your home, leave everything that was comfortable and familiar and go to another place where potentially people spoke a different language and a different culture and very different um, religious beliefs to you, how do you think you would respond? So God comes and tells you, pack up everything and go. I'm going to take you to a new place and do some cool things. What would be your first response to that? What's your feeling? Guess you better go, says Nadine. Uh, Rick would be like, was that really God? Yep. Yeah, that's what I would do too. <laughs> Anybody else? Book the ticket, says Andrew. We're going to Europe. It's a miracle. <laughs> Anybody else? Come on, one more. Pray for confirmation, says Andrew. Ah, very good. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that you're committed to that can't leave behind. Not really. Okay, so first things first. I wanted to sort of explore who Abraham is a little bit and place him in the timeline. So, whoa, I've gone way too far. That's the one. I'm sorry that's hard to see, but just wanted to sort of put up a little bit of a timeline from creation to Abraham. Um, So there's a couple of things here I wanted to pull out. Uh, We can sort of establish from the ages of the guys, one to the next, as you can see, and we've talked about this before, that the flood happened around 1650 or 1656 or something like that, years after creation. And then Abram comes along about 350 years later. Um, You'll probably notice there that the lives of people take a fair pay cut after the flood and everybody starts to die sooner than they did before. So that's interesting. Um, Another interesting thing, which may not be too obvious, and I hope I can point this out well enough. I don't have this. Okay, so look at the overlap. Okay, so Adam is alive when Lamech is born. And then Lamech, obviously, is the father of Noah. Um, Noah passes stuff on to Shem, who lives before the flood. And Shem is alive when Abraham is. So if anybody ever asks you about the accuracy of Genesis, well... It's only really third, fourth-hand information because you could always go check with the guys that lived it. So that's pretty cool. Um, and that also, I think, has a lot of influence on why um, 
there are a lot of people who still worship God and who are righteous with God in these early years. Yes, there's a heap of people who are doing wicked things, but this line seems to be fairly consistently righteous people for the most part. And I think that's very much due to the influence of the guys that live long lives being able to say, yeah, I was in the garden. Yeah, I lived before the flood. You want to hear about what that was like? I can tell you. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, it's not that it would have to have been passed down through each person, though it probably was. You could always go check uh, firsthand from the guys that lived through it. So that's cool. Um, now, all of that, of course, became a problem, as we found out last week, with what happened at Babel. When the languages all get dispersed, it's going to be hard to go and check the facts. And I think that also might have some impact on why the lives take a bit of a pay cut. You notice guys like Shem and even some of the others after him are still living fairly long lives, only about half of what the guys before the flood did, but still pretty good. 400's a pretty good innings. Um, not sure I'd want to be around that long, but anyway. Um, I think that after Babel and after the dispersion of people into their language and people groups, it would have been very difficult to continue to live long lives because they wouldn't have access to all the information that they could if they all had the same language. So that means farming techniques, agricultural civilization, uh, smithing, smelting, um, architecture, art, history, ability to check facts, medicine, all of that stuff would have suddenly become disseminated into a whole bunch of different people groups that can't communicate because they have different languages. So a lot of information would have been lost and had been relearned. If you happen to be part of a people group that didn't have any smiths, for instance, well, you're stuck using Stone Age tools. If you're part of a group that didn't know how to play any music, well, you'd been very logical people. So <laughs> anyway, to move on a bit from that, those are just sort of some um, background observations about the period that Abraham is born into. So his father's this chap called Terah, and... Uh, he's born around 2,000 years after the creation. Uh, his family's from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, or Chaldees, which we can pretty much establish is in modern-day Iraq, sort of near the Persian Gulf. Uh, Adrian showed us a photo of the famous ziggurat of Ur last week, and that's where Abraham was from, Ur, where that ziggurat was built. Okay, so, Abram, this chap is very difficult to nut down to two sermons, which we've got for him, this one and one more. So in our mega-series, we're looking at unique characters in the Bible, how they interact with God, how they advance the narrative of the um, God-man thing. Um, and Abraham has more of the book of Genesis than anybody else. He's got full 15 chapters devoted to his life, whereas everybody else sort of got a bit of a quick slideshow, you know, um, just a glance, and then you've, oh, Noah's gone, yep, okay, Shem's gone. Oh, Abraham. <laughs> Okay, this is a full-length movie. Rightio. And you get all these detailed stories about his good times and his bad times. So that's really hard to condense down to two 30-minute sermons. And I'm going to try and stay on time. So I had to think carefully about what can I do with this. So I obviously can't cover all of his life, um, but I do want to look at a few different um, stories. And as we look at these passages, I want you to ask these three questions. So keep these thoughts in your mind. What do I learn about the man Abram from this passage? That's the first thought. So each passage we'll look at, what do I learn about him, the man Abram? Secondly, what does this teach me about God? And thirdly, how would I respond if God put me in that situation? Can you do that? Keep those three in your head. What does this teach me about Abram? What does this teach me about God? And what would I do in his shoes? Cool?
All right, let's go. So the first passage we need to look at is in uh, Genesis 11, starting at verse 27. I'm going to leave that up there for a bit. Uh, so Genesis 11, 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. So, sorry I had that up earlier and lost all the thunder, but anyway, this is a pretty straightforward passage. It's kind of an intro to the family. We've got this fellow called Terah, he's got three sons, Abram, Nahor and Haran. Uh, they all get married. Abram's wife, Sarah, I can't have kids. Haran has Lot and two daughters and then carks it and Nahor stays there. The rest of them all take off to, um, they head off for Canaan and they stop in this place called Haran. So that's kind of like um, the Middle East there. And as I said, Ur of the Chaldeans is right down near the Persian Gulf in modern day Iraq. And Abram kind of wanders up north with his father and his nephew and ends up stopping at this place called Haran where his father dies, his father Terah. So asking the questions, what do we learn about Abram? Well, what his family is. Can we establish anything about his character from this story? Anybody notice anything there? Yeah, he went with his father. Interestingly, at this point, we're not, this is the first time we meet Abram and we're not told that God told him to go yet. That happens in the next chapter. Um, but I think there is something we can establish about his character. You're right, he went with his father, so he probably convinced Dad to go, but he also took along Lot, his nephew. And in a way, he's doing that to provide for him. Like, Lot's father died, even before his own father died. So Lot's granddad's still alive, his uncles are still alive, but his dad's dead. And Abram, in taking Lot along with him, was providing for him, making sure he had a family. I mean, he could have left him there as well. Um, but yeah, he didn't shirk his family responsibilities. He took dad along and he took his nephew along, which is cool. Okay, can we establish anything about God from this passage? Yeah, that's right. Haran's not actually in Canaan, it's on the northern border. It's up in Syria. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, I wonder, was there a call on Terah's heart? We don't really know. No. Yeah, we don't know. But right here, God's not mentioned at all. So uh, I don't think it's really easy to establish anything about God. We can learn a lot about the people and we can sort of guess at their motivations for doing this. But yeah, this does, passage just doesn't mention God. So. Fairly straightforward. Okay, um, put yourself in their shoes. Well, we don't really know why they're going or what they're going for yet. So, But if you were to move somewhere, would you take your whole family with you or would you kind of just take off on your own? I know what I'd do. <laughs> I'd take off on my own. I've done it before and I'm doing it again. Anyway, um, let's move to the next passage. 
Genesis 12, the very next chapter, just flick your uh, page over or look down the page, whatever happens. Uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 9. The Lord said to, had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Okay? So we know he's 75 when he leaves Haran, not Ur. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land, as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Aeon on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Okay, so he's made it. They're in Canaan. Dad's died, been buried, move on. Head down towards Shechem. So, what can we learn about Abram from this passage? What did you observe about the man? Can we establish anything about his character or his behaviour? What do you think? He's obedient. He keeps going. Yep. Sorry, if I missed that. Yeah, he, he builds altars and he calls on the name of the Lord wherever he stops, which is really cool. Um, and I think it was Nadine said he was, he was obedient because... No, he was righteous because he could hear the Lord. That's... Well, he's blessed too. He's not just told to go. God, yeah, God promises to bless him. A whole bunch of stuff. So. Yeah, it's... That's a bit of an incentive. Yeah, there's a bit of an incentive there. But... Yes, for God to say, I'll bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse. That's a, a pretty good encouragement. And, oh, okay, this should turn out all right. Well, that's, that's what I was saying to you, because he's 75 years old, and he says, I'll make you in a great nation. Mm-hmm. Does he know how many kids? And my wife's barren, which we learned from the previous chapter. So, yeah, I'll bless you, make your name great, you'll be a blessing. It's interesting, God doesn't promise him anything material here, does he? He says, I'll make you into a great nation. Okay, so there's probably going to be offspring somehow. Even though Abram's like, mm-hmm, not sure how that's going to happen. But I'll make your name great. He doesn't say, I'll give you riches, I'll give you stuff. He doesn't even say, I'll give you land here. Not yet. That does come, but not yet. And Abram obeys, he heads off. At this point, Abram's not necessarily a really rich guy. Like, sure, that says that they'd accumulated some stuff in Haran, some people and stuff. I think there's a conception sometimes and maybe a misconception that Abraham was always a filthy rich dude. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Like here, they're sort of a small travelling party, you know, they're just sort of moving along and no one really notices them. But later in life, they become a kind of mega enterprise and there's cattle and sheep and camels and servants and enough of an army to send out 300 dudes for a night raid. So they become a force to be reckoned with. But not yet. At this point, things are still pretty quiet. Okay, so we can learn a fair bit about Abram. Um, what does this passage teach you about God? God has a plan, yep. Anything else? 
Now, God's timing is right. He doesn't tell him stuff that he doesn't need to know yet, and he doesn't tell him too late. He tells him exactly when he needs to know. Yep, that's cool. God calls people for a specific task. What do you mean by that, Rick? Yeah, God has chosen him and God's plans coming to pass are dependent upon Abraham being obedient to an extent. Cool. Um, a few things here. Uh, God is starting to unravel his plan to save mankind. Up to now, we've had all those generations of dudes we looked at and that's been one line from Adam to Abram. There's been plenty of other people around. Before the flood, a whole bunch of them were really wicked and it's starting to head that way again. Now remember, there were three families that came off the ark, Shem's, Ham's and Japheth's. Obviously, Abram is descended from Shem, but there are plenty of others, and they're all spreading out. Babel has happened. There's now a whole bunch of small kingdoms and people with different languages, and they're all starting to get pretty angry towards each other. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of open hostility yet because there's still a lot of going to and fro, and on his journeys, Abram continues to meet people that um, worship God. Uh, so, but here, it's like God is choosing one person to go, all right, I'm going to put my name on this family. They are going to be my ambassadors, my people, and I will bring about my plan to save mankind. But he doesn't force it on them. He tells Abram what's going to happen, and then he lets him choose whether he obeys or not. And Abram does. Cool. Now, what would you do in this situation? God shows up, says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to have lots of kids. What would you do? <laughs> Get up and go. Think about what's involved here. We've already talked about leaving everything behind, commitments that you can't really pack up and take with you. Abram leaves behind a brother and some nephews and nieces as well. He takes one nephew with him, sure. But there's also his other brother, Nahor. And he leaves him and all his family behind, which is just as well because later on that's where Isaac gets a wife. But anyway, um, he did leave behind uh, serious, you know, things that could have held him there. Um, in Haran as well, it's, it's quite possible that these guys were involved in some kind of business. They become very much um, livestock people later on, um, but Abram's family were probably in business deals with people around them. To pack up and move on when you've got a business isn't always fun or easy. Ask Tim and Tiff. Anyway, um, I've sort of had a little bit of an experience of this on a much smaller scale than Abraham. When God asked me to pack up and leave Rockhampton, it wasn't really easy. Um, I mean, I was only going to another place in, in um, Queensland, Toowoomba, where people still spoke English and the culture was fairly similar to Rockhampton. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a big change. It involved leaving a lot of stuff behind. And now he's asking me to do that again. We're going to be moving to Townsville soon, and that's because God has asked us to go there and do some work for him at the uni there. And we're going to be obedient, just like Abraham was. And so my encouragement to you is, if God calls you to do something crazy that is going to cost you, be obedient. Because there is always a blessing attached to being obedient to God. So, back on track. Next passage. Almost immediately after receiving this promise, we see Abram try to take matters into his own hands. And he commits a pretty disgusting sin in the process. So, keep going in um, chapter 12, verse 10 onwards. Read along with me. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. 
as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. Don't forget the camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Initial responses to that passage? What do you think? It's pretty shocking. Whatever massaging you apply to this text to try and make it sound nicer, this is a guy who's supposed to be a faithful, obedient servant of God who God has chosen to be his ambassador, pimping out his wife. That's what it is. He's worried about his own skin. Um, he's worried that the Egyptians would kill him to take his gorgeous wife. And so he goes, let's come up with a compromise that we can both get out of this. He's putting her honour on the line. And he's allowing her to be taken into another man's harem. But ask yourself, what's he doing in Egypt at all? Why is he down there? There was a famine. Oh, okay. Well, let's run away. Let's go where there's more food. Did God ever tell him to go to Egypt? No. Nope. What's he doing down there? So he's not trusting God in this point. He's taking matters into his own hands. Oh, the famine's getting severe. I can't see any other solution. Let's go where there's food. Even though it means I'll probably get killed because you're beautiful and we'll have to lie and you might have to commit adultery so that doesn't happen. But anything to stay alive, right? To keep good food on the table. Not really the best character going on there. Um, God had told Abram to go to Canaan and he'd promised to bless him in Canaan. When food gets scarce, he takes matters into his own hands and heads down to Egypt. So at best, he's a coward and a liar in this passage. At best. At worst, and I don't know if this is true or not, but he may have been deliberately pimping Sarah out. I read one commentary that, that uh, this scholar believes that this was a deliberate strategy to gain wealth. You notice something that he said to Sarai. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Why does he say, I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be, scared, will be spared? Because it's two different things. He's looking forward to being treated well. He's expecting some recompense. I'll say I'm your brother, you go join Pharaoh's harem for a while and we'll both get filthy rich out of it in the middle of a famine. So whether or not that's true, I don't know. It's not explicitly said in the Bible and this is just one scholar's idea. But it's, you couldn't rule it out either. Abram knew of his wife's great beauty. He knew it was likely they'd want to take her and he also knew she was barren so there was no chance that he'd somehow get an illegitimate heir out of it that would take his riches. And he knew that for a beautiful woman, the Pharaoh of Egypt would pay a great price. Some think it was a deliberate strategy to gain wealth, which is really, really immoral and wrong. <laughs> Ask yourself, fellas here, 
would you, uh, how many millions of dollars would you need to be paid before you would let your wife go into someone else's household as their wife? Hopefully you wouldn't take anything. There's something disgusting about a man who won't stand up for his wife's honour. So Abram, what do we learn about him from this? He's a liar and a coward, but he's also, as we've just seen in the previous passage, an obedient man. He's very fallible. He's a fallen creature. Yes, he is fatally flawed like all the rest of us. Maybe. God said this. God. Here's the road to that. So, as silly as it is, what he's done, mm-hmm. there could be some twisted. Yeah. You know, you, outworking of the theology that's just not. Exactly. Put yourself in his shoes. God said he's going to bless me. Hasn't happened. In fact, things are getting pretty bad here, and we're starting to tighten our belts, and everyone's losing weight. There's a lot of food down in Egypt, and there's a way we can get a blessing out of it. If I just send Sarah, I offer a little bit of a uh, tour of the palace. Um, yeah, maybe he thought this was how God was going to make him wealthy and provide for him and bless him. Pretty bad situation to be in to think that way, but maybe he did. It's as if he's trying to fulfill yeah, he's trying to jump the gun. Not willing to wait for when God's timing is and when God's going to bless him. He's just like, well, I can make this happen. Move over, God. I've got the plan. Let's go. <laughs> do you ever do that? No, of course not. No, we wouldn't do anything like that. Okay. This is the man God intends to carry on the godly line of Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem. This is the man who God has chosen to set up his name, his blessing, and to bring about the salvation of mankind. He's off to a pretty poor start. Not only has he now left the country where God told him to go, but he's fallen into sin. Um, something else you can... Uh, actually, no, I won't say that. That's, we won't go there. What can we learn about God from this passage? Where do you see God involved in here? Yeah, God steps in in a pretty big way. He makes Pharaoh and all his household pretty sick. And somehow they figure out that it's because of Sarai. We're not told, actually, how they figure that out. If you look there in the passage, did God appear to Pharaoh? Maybe, maybe at that time, you know, God was into the habit of appearing to people. Maybe Pharaoh worshipped God. Pharaoh's actually pretty blameless in all this. Both these two guys, well, guy and husband and wife turn up, but they're like, oh yeah, we're brother and sister, and she's absolutely gorgeous, and all his, you know, officials here, and they're like, mate, take it. Pay the guy, it'll be worth it. Um, And he's doing it all in good faith. He's got no reason to disbelieve them. So Pharaoh's actually fairly blameless in all this. But God says, no, this is all wrong, I'm not having this, I'm going to make them sick, and then they figure out that it's because of her, and he, Pharaoh summons Abram, and he's quite angry about it. Interesting that Abram feared that they would murder him and take his wife, but at this point, Pharaoh doesn't seem to be very murdering. I mean, he's, now he's really got just cause to murder him. Why not just kill him and be done with it? Well, his whole household is sick, and he knows that God has made him that way. So, what can we learn about God? He won't wait and let people be disobedient forever. If he's given you a calling, he's probably going to intervene if you stumble too far away and do something that'll get you back there. That's happened to me a few times in my life where I was running away from God and he sort of went tripwire on your face, go back. Um, And it was good for me 
It hurt, but it was good for me. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's almost like Abraham was given that, all those promises and and then it kind of like was the opposite of what maybe he was expecting. And um, mm. if we're honest, we do maybe distrust, get bitter about that because it's not working out the way we... we even, Absolutely. Even the promise might be that grand and so like it's all about God, I guess, his timing and, and making sure we don't get proud. Like, you know. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Agree with everything you said, Tim. Um, something else in this. Did you notice where Abram builds his altar to the Lord in Egypt? No, where Abram builds his altar to the Lord in Egypt. It's a trick question. He doesn't do it. He's not just being a liar and a coward. He's hiding the fact that he worships God. Everywhere else along the way, Shechem, Bethel, what does he do? Builds an altar, calls on the name of the Lord. Other people live there. It says the Canaanites are in the land. He made no secret of it there. But when he goes down to Egypt, don't tell anyone we worship Yahweh, to keep it quiet. So yeah, God really went, mm-mm, not on. <laughs> I picked you to do the opposite of that. Now, what would you do in this situation? Food's short, your family's starving, there's a way, it's not a very moral way, but who's going to know um, that you could sort of give God a helping hand and help him achieve what he's told you is his plan for your life. What would you do? Who can say? <laughs> yeah, not. It's easy to. Oh, we would never do that. Maybe we'd be worse. Maybe we'd be worse. Maybe we'd be better. Who knows? But what we can know is that God didn't give up on Abram. He's still his man. He's picked for the job. He's still the man of promise, and God doesn't let him get away. He brings him back. But how much time did he lose? Maybe Isaac, the son of promise, would have been born much earlier. Maybe Sarah wouldn't have been barren for as long. Maybe they wouldn't have had to go through a whole bunch more hardships and humbling if they'd just stuck with God's plan in the first place and never left Canaan. If they'd stayed there, famine went, they come back and it's gone. So it wasn't going to last forever. We'll never know. So that brings me to my second kind of big overarching question. How long are you willing to wait for God to work his plan in your life? It's easy to feel like, you know, Oh, okay, God's got a plan for my life. Yep, there's things to be done, but when's it going to happen? I'm, I'm pushing 30, now 35, now 40. When are the blessings going to come? It's something that I have to ask myself quite often. How long am I willing to wait for something to happen? Ask the other leader guys. They all know I'm extremely impatient. I'm like, right, we've decided, let's get it done. Let's have this meeting. I'm going to talk about this. See if we're going to be Baptists or not. Whatever else it is, get the church camp organised. Now, yesterday, where's the flyer? Where's the program? All this impatience. And then Rick says, God's not in a hurry. Slow down, Roger. <laughs> and I need that. Um, so I'd probably be way worse than Abram. I'd be running off, forming all these different solutions and going, God, look at this. I've got plan A, B, C, D, all the way down to Z. You can put yours in there somewhere if you like. Um, but don't get in my way. So God regularly has to humble me. And maybe he has to do that for you as well. Okay. I am running out of time. So, I'm going to move the slide forward. We've gone through three of the significant life events in the life of Abram. I know you can't read that, it's tiny. I sort of looked through all the 15 chapters that refer to Abram, and there's about 20 significant life events that I can um, sort of decipher. You might be able to break them down into it even more, but I thought 20 for 15 chapters is enough. So who, we've done three. Who's keen to keep going and get through the rest of them? 
<laughs> no, don't worry, I'm not going to. It was a... We've looked at three so far, and I'm only going to look at one more. But if you do look at them, I know you can't read them, uh, they quickly form into a kind of pattern. God says he'll bless Abram, and he gives him a promise. Abram starts out faithful and obedient and gets on with what God asks him to do. Then he sort of gets disillusioned. God seems to go silent for a while, and he falls off the rails, takes matters into his own hands, and stuffs things up. Then it happens again and again and again. So let's look at one more passage. Yeah, it sounds like Israel. He's the father of Israel after all, so maybe there's a bit of a legacy going on there. One more passage, one more significant event. This is from Genesis 18, 16 to 33. So if you go there, have a look with me, starting at verse 16. Genesis 18, 16. So this is a fair bit later. Um, a whole bunch of stuff has happened. Lot's no longer with Abram. Uh, Abram's, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah have been attacked by different kings and Abram being their ally and Lot living there and being captured. Abram goes out and helps them. The whole Melchizedek thing happens. Blah, 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 blah. A whole bunch of things happen in his life. Like I said, really long movie, lots of detail. This happens a fair bit later. Still no promised son. Still, they're back in Canaan. Still God saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you descendants that will number more than the stars in heaven. So, Genesis 18, 16, 33. Some men have visited Abram and they've had a meal together and he's discovered that they're basically angels and quite possibly King Jesus himself pre-incarnate. So we'll pick it up in 1816. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abram, Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. So it's still there. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that their sin and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord possibly the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in a city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, the Lord said, I will not destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? The Lord said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? The Lord said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? The Lord answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. 
When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. So this is a bit of a different Abraham to the last passage we looked at, isn't it? Um, what can we learn about Abraham? What can we establish about his character? Maybe some of the journey, we've skipped a whole bunch of stuff. So obviously he's, he's become a bit of a different person. What do you notice about who he is now? <laughs> yeah, I'll whittle him down bit by bit. I won't just say 10, God. That's it. If there's 10, you can't do it. But maybe he was demonstrating a little bit of humility in that. Like, I'll whittle him down slowly. I won't try and ask for it straight up. It's interesting that he has a real attitude of humility right through this whole thing. Was he testing God's justice? I don't know. I don't think so, honestly. Especially where he says, far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He's appealing to God's nature. He's saying, you are righteous, you are just, you need to punish evil, but you don't punish people that have done the right thing. Anything else we can establish about Abraham? Did you notice this? Sorry? Pretty bold. Pretty bold, yeah. Now I've been so bold. Now I've been so bold. Now I've been so bold. It just keeps it going with that theme. But he actually is that bold. And as I said, we skipped a lot of stuff that the relationship between God and Abraham has really developed at this point. There's been a lot more water under the bridge. But he still doesn't have the promised son. Isaac still hasn't been born at this point. He's been blessed in every other way. He's got land, he's got riches galore, but he doesn't have a son. And he's tried. One, one story we skipped was that of Hagar and Ishmael. He has tried to get a son his own way as well. That didn't work out so well either. Did you notice the subtle change from Abram to Abraham? He's Abraham here. He's not Abram anymore. God has come and visited him previous to this and said, your name will no longer be Abram, it will be Abraham, which is only slightly different. Um, I think Abram means great father um, and Abraham means our Lord, the great father or something like that. But it's got some reference to God in his name where it wasn't there before. So, what I could see. This is Abraham at his best, actually. He's totally selfless. There's nothing for him to gain by praying for Sodom. Um, he's just praying on behalf of them. Now, previous to this, we do know he has some buy-in because his nephew Lot was living in Sodom and is still there. Um, once before, Sodom was in trouble. They got raided by some other kings and Abraham hears that Lot's been captive, been taken captive, gets up in the middle of the night, gathers his men and takes off for a night raid, smashes them and brings back Lot and all of the people of Sodom. So he kind of, they've been his neighbours, he knows them a bit, there's a bit of buy-in there. But he's not got, got anything to gain out of this, which is quite different to the Abram we saw who was willing to pimp out his wife, maybe, for gain. He just is demonstrating the compassion and humility that he has seen God demonstrate over and over to him. He appeals to God's forgiveness and God's justice, which he himself has benefited from so many times. So, what can we learn about God from this passage? We're nearly done, I promise. God has compassion? Yep. He's steadfast? Yep. He's just, he's faithful? Yep. Yeah. God was willing to negotiate with a man. That's crazy. Like, think about it. This is God Almighty, King of the universe, judge of all the earth, Abraham addresses him as. But he appeals to his character. Will you do something that's wrong? Of course not. You're the judge of all the earth. 
God is just, but he's also merciful. And this is what I love about the consistent character of God. He must punish evil. He will. He always will. But he also bends over backwards, giving people chances to repent. He loves to forgive. And because he must have loved Abram at this point, Abraham, because he's like, you are doing exactly what I want you to do. You're interceding on behalf of other people. You're being my ambassador. You're being someone that cares about others, even though there's no gain for you. You're praying for them, asking me to spare them, give them another chance. That's exactly what God called him to do. You will be a blessing to all nations, and all nations will be blessed because of you. That's an awesome God. Those pleas for mercy were echoes of God's own heart, which, is, which was aching to save the miserable wretches of the world. That's our God. That's King Jesus. So finally, what would you do in this situation? You've heard that there is some destruction coming on some very evil people who have wronged you in the past, and there's some, they're basically just getting what they deserve. When you hear of a very wicked person, perhaps a rapist or a murderer, being apprehended and being punished, what's your first response? When you hear of a terrorist leader that's taken down somewhere around the world, what do you think? Good riddance, yay, we got him, more power to us. We sorted that guy out. Maybe, or maybe, like Abraham, you beg God to have mercy on them, have compassion. Please, let them be spared, let them have a chance to repent. That is King Jesus, that is our God, that's the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That attitude is not human at all. God Almighty, meet him in Abraham's shoes, a long life journey of slowly getting it more right, becoming more humble, more compassionate, and finally more interested in others. I'm going to stop there because there's a whole heap more stories about Abraham and we could be here all day, but what I wanted to point out was this. At what point along the journey was God not enough for Abraham? Did that ever happen? God always had a plan. God always was willing and able to look after him, to bless him, to provide for him. And this, this is the same God that made a whole bunch of people sick in Egypt to make Abraham get back on track. Now he's willing to negotiate with the guy. He's willing to, yep, let's get down to 10 people. So he's really been on a journey. So don't write yourself off. If you stuff it up again and again, Abraham's held up throughout the whole Bible and the Muslim faith as well as the greatest hero, prophet, legend of ever, basically. He's their founding father that they all love and go back to as like the moral compass. But he's not. (laughs) He's a messed up, flawed human being. Just remember that God has a plan for you as well. And Abraham, how he ends up at the end of his life, is a good way, is a good example of where we should end up with God. That's all I have for this morning. Going to roll straight into communion, um, which I think is up next. Yes. So when we come to communion, I think it's a constant encouragement um, that God's not finished with us, just like he wasn't finished with Abraham, or Abram, for that matter. Communion is a constant reminder of what King Jesus has done, but also a looking forward to what he's going to do, rescuing us, saving us, re-energizing us, making us fully what we are meant to be. This journey on earth, just like Abram's, it's not the final picture. It's just the training ground. But as we go on in relationship with God, we become more like him. We'll still get it wrong. We'll still need forgiveness and grace and mercy. But King Jesus wins in the end. So let's thank him. King Jesus, 
our Lord, our Saviour. Thank you so much for what you did on the cross. Thank you for going to the ultimate end. Thank you for paying the price that none of us could even approach. We couldn't even put in a deposit. And you paid it all in one hit. So thank you. Help us never forget that and help us remember your perspective on us, like it was on Abram, is that you're not finished. There is a, there is a better plan, there is a blessing ahead if we only remain faithful and committed to you. Help us remember that now. Amen. You know the drill, in your own time, come and grab some bread and some juice and then hold the juice and we'll drink it together.